All right. So I am excited today on the 24 podcast to be able to have um, author David Mack with us. He's the author of the recently released book, 24 Rogue. And so I have I, I didn't actually read the, the physical book. I listened to the audio book um, and it is a fantastic book. I definitely loved it. So it's definitely my pleasure to welcome you to the show, David. Thank you, Josh. Well, it's great to be here. Yeah, so um, I obviously we want to uh, kind of tease a little bit about the book, give a little bit of information and background as far as um, how you got into that. But maybe we can just kind of get a, a summary of more exactly about what you do, and then um, and then we can kind of lead into how you were able to get into this position of re- be able to write this book. So your question specifically is what? Um, Where are we how- starting? Uh, yeah, how how did you get started in in your career? What what is it that you do? Um, well, that's for a living? long that's a long story. Uh, okay, we only had half an hour. Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, I've been writing most of my life, a good thirty years at this point, uh, since my uh, teen years. I started out just scribbling fiction, and uh, then I took a screenwriting course and got serious about that. Went to NYU Film School, started submitting spec scripts to Star Trek. The Next Generation and Star Trek Deep Space Nine uh, during my college years and immediately after. Uh, my first professional breakthrough in fiction writing was in television with Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Star Trek Voyager in 1995. And after that, I continued pitching to TV but was not able to replicate my early success. So I transitioned into writing novels around the year 2000 to 2001. Uh, I started actually with a Star Trek reference book of sorts, and then that led me uh, to writing short novella-length ebook fiction for Star Trek. That, of course, was well-received and led to me writing paperbacks. Um, I've written about two dozen Star Trek novels at this point, but I've written uh, books or comic books or video games or whatever for a variety of franchises, uh, including, of course, 24, also the 4400, Farscape, Wolverine, uh, and a few others, and I've had one original fantasy novel published titled The Calling that came out in 2009, and I'm now branching out and diversifying into some other stuff. I'm still writing some Star Trek books, uh, one of which will be out next fall, Uh, but I've also got uh, an original trilogy. Uh, The working title for the series overall is Dark Arts. The first book is The Midnight Front, and that's with Tor Books. The projected publication date for book one is probably spring or summer of 2017. I've finished writing book one. I'm about to start writing book two imminently after I finish some research. So that was the very Reader's Digest version of how I got into the business. Started in film and TV, transitioned to books, and I've been writing novels now for about 15 years, give or take. Awesome. I definitely appreciate that. And, uh, and so how did you get get the opportunity to be able to write 24 Rogue? As it turns out, it was uh, a gig that was offered to me by the editor, Melissa Frain, at Tor Books. Tor had recently signed a deal, I guess shortly after or shortly before the broadcast of the 12-episode uh, 24 Live Another Day miniseries. And they did a deal to publish three books based on 24. The first one went to my friend James Swallow, who's also a New York Times bestselling author. And he wrote a really excellent book called 24 Deadline, 
which picked up literally at the minute that season eight ends with Jack Bauer going on the run from New York with everybody in the world trying to kill him and chronicles the 24 hours immediately after the end of season eight or day eight, as some people call it with Jack trying to see his daughter one last time before he leaves the country and vanishes, you know, into the ether. That book, while it, before it came out, or I guess shortly after it came out, was when uh, Melissa Frain contacted me and said, I got your name from a fellow tour editor who's worked with you before, who said you would be a good fit for what we're doing. Would you be interested in writing a 24 novel? And not being a fool, I said, yes, yes, I would. <laughs> um, actually, I, I've been a fan of 24 since day one. I watched you know that first episode all those years ago and was hooked. And I've seen every minute of the show. I've seen the you know the standalone movies like Redemption and whatnot. Um, I watched Live It Another Day, so I was very uh, psyched to get the call about 24. Writing a Jack Bauer adventure had been on my bucket list, along with Indiana Jones. James Bond, and Star Wars. So that's one out of four down, three to go. So I uh, got the call. I was invited to pitch some ideas and throw some concepts around. They wanted the manuscript really quickly. I was contacted in May of uh, last year, and they wanted the manuscript by September. And I said, sure, I can do that. It actually worked out pretty well for my schedule. So I concocted an idea. I said, well, what are my parameters? When do you want it set? And they said, specifically, we would like a story that is set between the end of season eight and the beginning of Live Another Day. That's a gap of about four years where Jack was on the run with no support, no friends, no contact with any of his CTU um, cohort. I mean, that, that was stated explicitly in uh, Live Another Day that during those four years, he had basically been a ghost. He hadn't had contact with anybody. So I had to run with that, and I had to think in terms of Jack being a lone rogue operator, following his own agenda and his own mission. And I put together this story, which uh, I, I picked up on a thread from Live Another Day, which was he had, I guess, uh, an aborted attempt to infiltrate and take down an arms dealer named Carl Rask. And, of course, that situation comes to a head in Live Another Day, but I thought, okay, that's a springboard that I can build on. Rask was not on his radar before he went on the run. This is clearly something that happened after he went on the run. So I have the story about him trying to infiltrate the organization of Carl Rask. He's doing so under an alias, uh, an assumed identity. He's aboard a freighter that is, that is privately owned by Rask, that Rask uses to move weapons and material and contraband around the world. And right at the very beginning, you know, Jack's cover is getting blown. Uh, and as if that's not bad enough, at the same time, the ship is being boarded by Somali pirates uh, in the Gulf of Aden off the coast of Somalia near Berbera. So that's pretty much the springboard that launches the story is the ship being taken by pirates. And Jack uh, has to figure out what the hell is going on, what the pirates are after, because it becomes very clear they're not just here for ordinary plunder. They're too well equipped, too well informed. Um, and they're clearly searching for something specific. And then once he figures out what it is and realizes just how dangerous it's going to be if this thing reaches the mainland and falls into the wrong hands, he then has to shift to the next gear of his story where he has to follow the stolen cargo ashore. And now he's operating alone in Somalia 
trying to recover this uh, basically stolen uh, super weapon nuclear payload thing. And there's a lot of basically rival factions coming at him from all directions. There's terrorist factions, there's Islamic uh, militants, there's the Russian guys who have gotten wind of where Jack is and now they're coming for him. There's American military on the ground who would arrest him on sight. Um, so he's got basically everybody against him and he's trying to do the right thing, but nobody's making it easy. Yeah, that's a really good summary. Um, so I love that. Yeah, it, it was a great book. It makes me want to go back and listen to it again. <laughs> yeah, so uh, you, you did a really, really good job of uh, bringing a lot of um, the internal thoughts of Jack Bauer, which is obviously one of the benefits of writing as opposed to uh, watching the show. Uh, so, so you get the action, but you also get the internal processings of Jack. And so, mm-hmm. um, so, so what was that like to be able to kind of get inside the head of Jack Bauer and be able to articulate that? A bit challenging. Uh, obviously, I don't personally think like Jack Bauer, so I had to try and imagine as best I could how he would think, how he would feel about certain things. There are certain attitudes and certain beliefs that he holds which are not my personal beliefs but i had to realize that you know this is more about what he would think how he would feel so in a way that was a a challenge but it was also kind of fun it is one of the joys of writing novels as opposed to writing screenplays screenplays are very external in their point of view the camera is the point of view So the viewer always remains outside the perspective of the characters. We're always seeing the characters from an omniscient remove. Whereas when you're writing a novel, uh, with a few exceptions, you're almost always writing any given scene from the point of view of a character in the scene. And you have to filter everything that's being perceived, sensory details, attitudes, uh, information, through that character's perspective. So that, for instance, one of the things you can do in prose that you can't do in screenplay is you can withhold information from the reader by choosing which point of view you you tell a scene from. You can choose to tell a scene from the point of view of the person who has the least information and therefore does not know what's going on. Whereas if you always wrote from the point of view of the person who is privy to all the plans, you'd give away a lot of surprises in the book. But sometimes the, you want that kind of mystery thing going on. Like, for instance, one of my all-time favorite movies is Ronan, starring Robert De Niro, Jean Reno, uh, among other uh, fine actors. It's a great movie, and for years I was thinking, God, I would love to write a book that sort of lifts that basic structure. But as I studied the movie, I realized it cannot work as a novel. Because the whole thing follows De Niro as he's going on this crazy mission uh, you know, to steal this briefcase, and then the mission goes wrong, and there's betrayals and double cross and triple cross. But the whole thing hinges on the surprise reveal at the end of the movie as to what his actual objective is, what he's doing, and why he's doing it. And if you tried to write that as a novel, if you ever were telling a scene from the point of view of the De Niro character, you would be privy to that information and it would spoil the whole surprise. So your only two options are never have a scene from the point of view of the guy who's ostensibly your main character, which would be very frustrating for a reader, or have the scenes from his point of view and ruin the entire narrative structure of the of the story. 
So sometimes a story is perfectly suited to its medium. Uh, sometimes it's adaptable back and forth between media. Um, Ronan is a case where it is not. Um, 24, I think, is a little more flexible because Jack is very often the guy in the low information position within a story. He's basically our point of view. He's our way into the story. He's the guy who's unraveling the mystery, digging up details, getting people to talk. Because he's in the low information position within a story, he's the ideal character uh, to have as your point of view character, which makes him both a great main character for film and TV and for a book. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, with with our podcast, um, since LAD ended, uh, we um, I got in touch with a couple of the fans of the podcast, and we ended up getting together and started some fan fiction. And we've been, uh, or at least I can speak for myself, I've I've encountered that that same dilemma, um, trying to um, as we're writing it, trying to keep it in that kind of perspective, and I find myself wandering away from it. So it definitely takes a good discipline. Well, it helps to have other characters that you can cut away to. That was another thing I enjoyed about the 24 novel, is that I was free to explore a variety of points of view, not just Jack's point of view, but that of, for instance, Abby Harper, the uh, Australian agent who sort of joins his cause once he's on the ground in Somalia, but also being able to look at the situation from the point of view of some of the supposed villain some of the uh the bad guys on the ground from the point of view of some of the russians um showing that there were conflicts within the various factions um that was also something i enjoyed quite a bit and also being able to get into the heads of some of the navy seals it, it really kind of makes it feel bigger and more expansive when you can sort of see this adventure from a lot of different points of view um, and that's one of the things I've always really enjoyed about books is that it allows you to take characters who would just be a minor background character or a minor walk on or supporting role in film or TV. But because you're able to filter a scene through their point of view, a reader is able to sympathize and empathize with those characters, I think, a lot better than they could just watching them on a TV screen. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, the one thing I was actually curious about, how did you come up with the idea to um, have an Australian operative? How, I mean, obviously, 24 pulls in um, people from different countries here and there. Was there a, a particular strategy behind Australia? I think that came out partially just because I wanted to write an Australian character, and I thought that would be fun. But also, when I was researching the uh, the history of piracy in Somalia and which countries were most active in uh, suppressing terrorist activity within the East Africa region uh, and around the Indian Ocean region. Australia is actually a major player in terms of international intelligence, uh, international on-the-ground operations uh, in that part of the world. Uh, the whole Indian Ocean region, particularly in East Africa, Madagascar, Yemen, um, that whole area... That's where uh, Australia really projects military force and intelligence uh, personnel on the ground and has a pretty good handle on what's going on. Uh, so I think when I was looking at who would be most likely to have an operative on the ground investigating this type of stuff uh, engaged in anti-piracy operations other than the United States, because I knew I couldn't pair up Jack with an American agent 
who would very likely recognize him, you know, right off the bat and turn him in. Uh, I decided that uh, Australia looked like it was the most viable uh, candidate to have English-speaking, qualified personnel on the ground in that part of the world. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that's good. I, um, I, I can appreciate the research that goes behind it. And so, uh, you yeah, mentioned you there about no idea. <laughs> there were tons of research. Every little detail uh, had to be researched extensively. Every road, every highway that I mentioned is a real road. Uh, all the intersections I mentioned in some of these cities, like Hargeisa and whatever, are real intersections. The AGM 129A really is a nuclear cruise missile that really was decommissioned uh, around that time, I think October, November of 2012, which is approximately when the story would be taking place. Uh, the whole detail about the common strategic rotary launcher in the B-52H being the only deployment mechanism for the AGM-129, that's actually true. Uh, I concocted the bit about being able to reverse engineer the connection points for the pylons uh, and put it into a Russian Su-34, uh, and I actually researched that a Russian Su-34 had the necessary payload capacity, uh, operational range, et cetera, to haul a payload as heavy as an AGM-129. Uh, so I had to do tons of research you know, into things like aircraft, missiles, nuclear payloads, uh, flight times from point A to point B, driving times between all these various locations. There's a reference, I think, in the story to why they couldn't land at a particular airport in Somalia because the airport is under construction. Uh, at the time, that was true. Uh, at the time that the story is set, that airport was closed uh, to international flights due to the fact that it was being rebuilt. So there's tons of little details like that throughout the story uh, that were meticulously researched. And then on top of all this, there's the one flub, which is that I... Uh, failed to note that in uh, James Swallow's novel Deadline, he actually had Russian President uh, Yuri Suvorov uh, convicted and sent to jail. Somehow I missed this, and James, who read my manuscript before it went even into production, somehow missed the fact that I had Suvorov back in power uh, with no explanation to how this happened. If anyone's wondering, that's called a mistake. Um <laughs> which I didn't catch, and the author of the previous novel didn't catch, and the editor didn't catch, and the proofreader didn't catch, and then somebody tweeted it at me, uh, like, last week, and I was like, um, I got nothing. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I guess there's only so much you can be able to catch. I mean, we're not Jack Bauer ourselves, so. Uh. <laughs> it was just, I, I skim-read, you know, uh, Deadline, mostly just to get a sense of, what uh, James was doing plot-wise and uh, see how he was handling characterization and internal monologue. And I missed that continuity detail. But the funny thing is, you know, James read my novel at manuscript stage, and he was commenting on things like, well, you know, you've cited these initials for this Russian intelligence organization, but it's actually this organization. And you mentioned this city, you know, as being connected to this Australian intelligence service, but they're actually based out of this city. So I was correcting lots of these little details that James was catching and flagging for me. And somehow we just both missed the part about Yuri Suvorov being president of Russia again. So <laughs> these things happen. You know, you can't see the forest for the trees sometimes. Yeah. Well, I guess as long as you didn't bring Logan back. Um. No, no. <laughs> that would have been bad. Yeah. Uh <laughs> Well, it, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so 
yeah, I mean, definitely a lot of a lot of really good stuff, a lot of really good detail um, that 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 I know went into it, and it would made it a very enjoyable book. And so I definitely love the story, and uh, it makes me want to see what comes next. And so um, definitely uh, love that. And so uh, do do you know anything? Um, I, you, you may not be able to reveal anything if you do, I guess, uh, about what might be coming in the third book. Um, I'm not sure how much I'm supposed to say. I know that it's being written by my friend, New York Times bestselling author Dayton Ward, uh, who I've worked with on many a Star Trek project over the years. Dayton is an ideal candidate to write a 24 novel. He was a Marine for 11 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it's been revealed yet what his direction is with the book or what his setting is and uh i don't want to speak out of turn and uh accidentally spill something i'm not supposed to spill so since it's not my book i'm just going to say uh that dayton i think is going to really do a great job of capturing the point of view of jack bauer i think his action scenes are going to be top notch um and i think that you're going to find that he has a really great sense of place because i know where he plans to set the book and I know that it's a place where he served as an active duty Marine. So I think that uh, when you combine that personal experience uh, with just his natural writing talent, I think you're going to have a, a really kick-ass 24 book. But I don't want to say too much beyond that. Okay. Yeah, that's understandable. But that uh, that sounds really cool. And so the fact that he has that experience personally to be able to draw from. So, yeah. Um I had a couple questions uh, since you are um, and have been a, an avid 24 fan. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have a particular uh, season that you would say is your favorite? I don't know. That would be hard to say. Um, it's been a long time since I've watched. I mean, I watched uh, Live Another Day and I had to rewatch parts of season eight as research, but been a long time since I can even remember what each of the individual seasons was about. <laughs> yeah, I understand uh, that. The one where they set off the nuke outside L.A., I think that was season two. That was fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm always partial to the one in New York, even though the driving times are ridiculous. It takes an hour to get anywhere in the city, and they've got these guys going out to, like, Long Island City <laughs> from Manhattan and getting there in 20 minutes. I'm like, there's no way in hell you did that. Uh, i mean i drive in this city i know this city you can't do that um so no i don't know that i have a favorite city uh i've always had you know as far as favorite characters i know i've always been partial to mandy from season one uh but that's just because i'm a fool for mia kirshner Ah. (laughs) are you there yeah i'm here okay Sorry, it just seemed like cut out real quick, so. No, no, I just kind of ran out of things to say. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, I, I've heard some people that, like, maybe I haven't heard them say that that's, like, their favorite character, so that's interesting. And so, um, yeah, I, I don't know if, uh, you said that you did a skimming of Deadline, um, but mm-hmm. uh, but James brought her back um, there and was actually a semi-ally of Jack um, mm-hmm. there, so that was... I, I love the way that he integrated that and so kind of brought yeah, a new perspective. And then I had her in a cameo. Oh, I'm trying to remember that part now. Okay. The, when the oil executives uh, limousine goes up. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then we cut to the point of view of Mandy. Yeah. I remember that now. Okay. Yeah. She's only in one scene. It's a cameo appearance, but it was fun. 
Yeah. Just, getting, just working her back into the story. Yeah, excellent. Excellent. Well, yeah, I so I definitely uh, appreciate the time that you spent to be able to share the book and some of the things that go behind the scenes. Is there anything else that you wanted to share um, either about this book or something else that you're working on? Uh, something else that I'm working on. Obviously, I've already plugged uh, Dark Arts, which is coming in 2017. The novel I just finished writing a couple of weeks ago is my contribution to the Star Trek 50th Anniversary Trilogy, which is called Legacies. My book is called Best Defense. It's book two of the trilogy. Book one is called Captain to Captain, and that's by my friend, uh, New York Times bestselling author Greg Cox. Uh, Dayton Ward, uh, who, whose name you'll remember from a few minutes ago, is writing the next 24 book, is writing book three of the trilogy along with his writing partner, Kevin Delmore. Uh, and that book is called Purgatory's Key. And those books are scheduled to be out next summer. I believe they are July, August, and September releases to coincide specifically with the actual 50th anniversary of Star Trek, which is September 8, 2016, for those of you marking it on your calendars. Hmm. And uh, that's what I've got coming up next year. I've also got a, uh, a short story in an anthology coming out in April. The anthology is called 2113, Stories Inspired by the Music of Rush. And that's a, a project that was put together by New York Times bestselling author Kevin J. Anderson and John McFetridge. Uh, they were the editors. It's being published by ECW Press out of Toronto. And the idea is that a whole bunch of different authors, uh, including myself, Dayton Ward, Greg Van Eekout, Mercedes Lackey, Michael Z. Williamson, and many others, were approached by Kevin to write original pieces of short fiction of any genre, any style, anything we wanted, the only requirement was that the story be inspired in some way by a song by the Canadian prog rock trio Rush, and that we not directly quote any lyrics uh, or song titles in the story itself. And this, uh, the song I chose was called Show Don't Tell, uh, and I used it to tell a courtroom story, but it's also a time travel story. So it's kind of a, a fun little change-up pitch for me. I'm very happy with the way that story came out. I just saw some advanced reader copies of the book at World Fantasy Con last week, which I was not expecting. Um, it's a really just a, a fun project. I think it's going to be great for Rush fans, but I think it's also just a great collection of short stories on its own right. I also have a short story which will be out sometime next year as part of a collection called Out of Tune Volume 2. And that's a kind of a horror fantasy anthology put together by New York Times bestselling author uh, Jonathan Mayberry. And the premise there is a whole collection of short stories that are based on or inspired by old English, Irish, or Scottish folk ballads from like the 18th century or 19th century. Uh, and what I did is I took one called The Suffolk Miracle, which I believe is an old English folk ballad, and I reimagined some of its core elements uh, and turns it into a weird Western set in late 19th century North Texas. And I worked in some Native American mythology uh, and just had a good time with that. So I'm also very happy with the way that story has turned out. I'm not sure of the specific release date on that one. I know 2113 will be out in April. I'm not sure what the projected release date is yet for Out of Tune. So that's pretty much the sum total of my works coming in 2016. I'm working right now to try and have a lot more 
uh, projects coming out in 2017. So 2016 will be a light year for me. One novel, a few pieces of short fiction. Um, I'm hoping 2017 will feel like a flood. <laughs> yeah, uh, you definitely have the skill. So I, I hope that comes out for you. It's, awesome. yeah, it's just the fact that, you know, original novels have very long lead times between when you finish writing them and when they actually hit the shelves. There's more rewriting involved. There's more editorial process involved. Uh, there's more promotional time that it takes to get them ready because you have to solicit promotional quotes from other authors. The sales force needs more time to plan a sales strategy for an original novel than it does for a media tie-in like Star Trek or Star Wars or 24. Since you don't already have the built-in audience, you have to be uh, far more proactive in targeting the book to audiences and getting the word out. So it takes a lot longer to publish an original novel because there's a lot more preparation that goes on on the uh, back end by the publisher mm -hmm. uh, than there would be for a tie-in. So even though I've got this three-book deal that I'm working toward and I'm working on uh, setting up a couple more Star Trek books and some other projects, uh, the originals just take so long on the back end that even though I made this deal like last year, it'll be 2017 before the things see print. Uh, and that's just the way original publishing goes. It's got a very long lead time. Awesome. Well, I definitely appreciate the time again that you've taken to be able to share all this. And so definitely thank you and uh, definitely wish you well. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. It was great being here. Great talking to you.